The general manager's perspective. Former New York Mets general manager Steve Phillips joins the Fangraphs Beat the Shift podcast to recap the winter meetings, talk about the landscape of the free agent market, and discuss the new baseball rules. All that and more with guest Steve Phillips coming up next on Beat the Shift. Welcome to another episode of the Beat the Shift podcast presented by Fangraphs. I am your host, Ariel Cohen, and with me as always is Ruven Guy. How are you, Ruven? I'm doing great. How are you doing today? I'm doing fantastic, and we want to welcome in a uh, special guest to the show. Currently has the show, the leadoff spot on MLB Radio. You might know him as the former general manager of the New York Mets. He also uh, was a color commentator for MLB 2K9 through 2K13 video games. And he recently has played in the Tout Wars 12-team draft. Welcome to the show, Steve Phillips. How are you, Steve? I'm doing great. That's right. My claim to fame is the voice of the video games. And I got to tell you, of all the things that I've done, you know, taking a team to the World Series, you know, all of that, my boys think the coolest thing I've ever done is doing the voice of the video game. They absolutely think (laughs) that is the coolest thing. Absolutely. That's why I began the show with that, obviously. (laughs) Exactly. I I love it. Well, thanks for joining the show, and as we do on the show, we get right into it. And, you know, as, as a general manager, we wanted to get your take uh, just on, on the job itself. And, you know, you were a man- you were general manager back in the late 90s, uh, early 2000s. How do you think that the general manager job, general manager job has changed uh, from when the time that you were there till now, especially with the use of analytics? Yeah, oh, the game's changed a lot. Yeah, it really has. I think that, that I mean, general managers are much more involved in the managing of the game than they've ever been. Uh, you know, when I was general manager, I put the team together. I would give information to the manager, but I'd let him make decisions. And then I would judge him based upon the job that he did with that. Now, uh, you know, front offices really, I think, get much more involved in the, the lineup creation and, and the analytics departments and sharing information and almost sort of nudging uh, managers and the decisions, you know, getting them to lock in and making decisions before the game, uh, which, which, you know, and I've, I've been down that road when you're, you know, even with a general manager with an owner, you know, once you say something to the owner, they want to hold you accountable and not understanding that it's fluid, things change, things adjust, you have to be able to adapt on the fly. And I think a lot of managers feel locked in in that way. And so I do think there's been a lot of changes. Uh, but the analytics have taken the game to a whole nother level. I mean, I was general manager, I guess, when the book Moneyball came out. Uh, and so, uh, uh, you know, and so all these years later, 20 plus years later, uh, you know, we're, we're, you know, sort of looking at it and, and uh, uh, understanding it differently. And, you know, we've got teams that still practice. Where do I find values? Where's that edge that I can get? You've got other teams that are trying to practice Moneyball even when they have money. Uh, and, uh, and so it's an interesting phenomenon, but, uh, but the game still, the beauty is still there in the game. It's still that beautiful, amazing creation that, uh, uh, that we all love so much, even if sort of the way to create teams and evaluate teams and evaluate players has changed. The beauty of the game is still there. 
Yeah, you know, uh, this is the Fangraphs podcast, and I do have to ask about stats and analytics here. Um, you know, when I'm looking at a very quick stat for, hey, who are the best hitters and who are the best pitchers, I'm using, like, WRC+, and I'm using strikeouts minus walks for pitchers. Do you think that any of the teams out there are using a very quick metric? I know that maybe about 10 years ago, the Marlins were using ERA literally as, okay, if you know pitcher's good, let's just rank them by ERA, and there you go. Do, do you think any teams are sticking to these you know, simple analytics or most teams are going to the complicated array of stats? Yeah, I think that they get to a complicated array of stats, but I think that, that you know, when initial conversations happen, I think like you did, they would go to Way to Runs Creative Plus or OPS Plus and they'd look at some numbers and, and make a quick judgment and then say, all right, let's dig in deeper on these guys because that at least gives you a general sense uh, it doesn't tell you the whole story, but it tells you a little more of the story than, uh, than you know, some of the, like, I still do interviews where people ask me about guys batting average in RBIs. And I'm like, I, you know, we, that's not really what we look at much anymore. You know that, right? Uh, and so, uh, but, but no, I do think that, that in at least a, an initial blush, uh, you know, and even for listeners, I think an initial blush, you know, you know, way to runs creative plus can tell you a lot about a player, but there's digging in that you need to do. How did he arrive there? Uh, you know, what what approach does he take? What style does it take? How's the hard hit percentage and, and, and barrel percentage? And so there's a lot of different things to be able to look at with it. Uh, but certainly, I think that that teams in initial conversations, you know, may look at certain numbers before they do the deep dive. Right. So I'm looking at this offseason so far, and it's been it's been a thrilling one so far. I mean, I, I don't remember seeing that many $200-plus contracts in the span of two weeks ever. Um, I can tell you for a fact that never happened. Um, you know, with all the analytics today, i got to imagine that some of these contracts really don't lift up to snub on, on oh, sure, a player is really worth $40 million for 13 years. Do you think that the recent acquisitions have been more market economics, so we're talking supply and demand driven? Uh, or do you think that, no, actually, it's a combination of analytics and old school marketing? Well, I think, yeah, I think it's, I, I you know, I got to say that I'm not convinced that analytics has come into play nearly as much this year in signing players as it has, you know, five years ago. I mean, five years right. ago, teams were not signing players that were 33 years old to long-term contracts and and you know like like you guys like uh jacob de weren't getting five-year deals uh even if they were jacob de and and you know guys like you know aaron judge weren't getting nine to ten year contracts because albert pools did and, and miguel cabrera did and and those contracts are not turning out all that well and so i think it's really interesting uh you know that that whatever whatever you know i guess it's like this you know when, when a woman has a baby, it hurts. And and if you ask her, do you want to have another baby, right after she delivered the first baby, they she would say no. But then, you know, selective memory kicks in. And somewhere down the road, she's like, yeah, I'd love to have another baby. <laughs> and so she forgets. It's the same thing. Like, do we forget? We forgot. You know, for a while, when the Pujols and, and Cabrera contracts were right in front of us and the pain of those and, and, and how they – sort of were failing on the back end. Everybody's saying, well, we can't go down those roads. Nobody's going to do those. 30-year-olds, 31-year-olds don't get 10-year contracts anymore. Well, we have selective memory. I guess we forgot. Now we're willing to give 11, 12, and 13-year contracts uh, to players. And some part of it, I think the justification is 
that we're going to lower the AAV by adding years on, that I'd really only like to do a 10-year deal with Carlos Correa for $350 million. So let me do it for 13, spread the money out a little bit more. I get free deferred money, and it lowers the AAV of the deal. Maybe that's the justification, but it's not analytically driven. It's financially driven. Well, with all these new signings and everything, the winter meetings, this is when it all started, all the major signings started when, when the agents meet with the players and everything like that. We've had three signings of shortstops of 11 years or more. Who do you think so far has been the best, the winners and the losers of the winter meetings and of the free agent signings so far? Well, I certainly, you know, I like what the Phillies, look, I, I'm a big Trey Turner fan. And Turner's one of those players where, uh, you know, the, the uh, performance in 23 can expect it to be better than the performance in 22 just because of rule changes. His value has gone up. Range is going to matter more as we ban the shift. Well, he's the second fastest guy in baseball. Stolen bases matter more because the bases are bigger. We're limiting the pitchers throwing over to first base. Uh, and and so a guy that's like, I think I think he could be a 50-plus stolen base guy next year. Uh, and so um, and so I think that, that it's funny how just with the rule changes, players' values have changed in certain directions. You know, a guy like Tyler Anderson, uh, who, you know, signed a three-year, $39 million deal with the Angels, I look at it and think, well, here's a contact pitcher, uh, no shift anymore. Uh, he's not going to be as good next year as he was last year. Just not. And he's not, and last year was an anomaly from what we've seen in his career. Those kind of guys, contact pitchers, are, in my mind, going to be a little bit less without the shift. And so so I think that there are certain players who value has gone up. Turner's one of those guys. And I think his, you know, we always say, well, speed guys don't age well. But – one, he's the second fastest player. And so it's from where do you start uh, when you decline? It's not where do you that you're going to decline. And so he may become slower over time, but he's still going to be one of the fastest players in the game. And with the rule changes, he's still going to be a, an impactful player that way. So, you know, that, you know, I think the Taiwan Walker, the, uh, the, the, the signings there that they've made, I think they've done a nice job overall. Uh, with in Philadelphia. I think I look, I would have signed Aaron Judge. I think the Yankees did what they needed to do to get it done. In some ways, you can think to yourself, well, uh, it, one, it was one of the greatest negotiations I think we've ever watched. I think the agent did a tremendous job with the negotiation. He, the radio silence ate at the Giants and it ate at the Yankees like never before. Like there were times when they just wouldn't hear anything back. And it, and it ate him up. And we could hear like Aaron Judge get interviewed and the Giants like, we don't know what's going to happen. And, and and so, but in the end, the Yankees get him. Sure, they paid him 100, what, 65 million more than what they had offered previously. But they got him at below market value because the market said he was worth 10 years at 400 million. And they got him at nine years, 360 million. And so in some way, they got him to commit for less than what the market said his value was. Uh, I love the Xander, like Xander Bogarts. I love him going to San Diego. I didn't like the contract. I don't. I wouldn't have given him 11 years. Uh, you know, I know they spread the money out a little bit with it, but uh, that was, a, I think, a bit high. I love the player, uh, even though you know analytically, defensively, he's probably not there. But maybe next year, Manny Machado opts out of his contract, and so Bogarts could move over to third base and protect them some in that way. Um, and so, I like Josh Bell going to to Cleveland. Cleveland can't, you know. Power costs money in free agency uh, and power arms and power bats. And small market teams can't tend to do it. That's why they have to develop their own power impact players. But for two years at $33 million, uh, for a switch hitter, for a team that was ranked 29th at home runs last year, in fact, they had 127 home runs as a team. That's literally half of the 254 that the Yankees hit. 
last year. And so they needed power. So those are the, some of the, the, the signings and deals that I like. I think that there's a lot of them that I thought were really good, really thoughtful. I mean, a lot of money being spent on guys. Uh, but I think that, that you know, there are some that, that I think are worth the investment in the impact player. And then some where I think they got a little bit under the radar and got a bargain on it. So according to uh, Fangraph's projections on an AAV per war basis, so comparing the money versus the value in terms of war, uh, Jace Peterson, one of the best signings of the year, uh, 475 AAV for uh, 1.4 war. And number two on the list, Brandon Nimmo, projected war by Fangraphs of five. Even though it's a 20-plus million dollar AAV, that's actually one of the best AAV per war. At the bottom, you got more pitchers there. Taiwan Walker, Noah Syndergaard projected, projected poorly. Of course, all the relievers. Kenley Jansen's actually projected pretty poorly on an AAV basis. Worst hitter projection, Jock Peterson, uh, nineteen million, yeah. almost almost twenty for only one point eight WAR comes up pretty lame. And, and I, as uh, I was talking with my uh, my boss the other day and uh, talking about the Yankees and Aaron Judge, well, one of the issues though with the Yankees, and I don't really see the Yankees as a tremendous winner. I think they sort of held par because right. to me they they just spent three hundred sixty million dollars and their team isn't any better. Yeah, no, you're 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 not wrong uh, yet. You know, from a general manager's perspective, one of the ways you look at it is uh, if they hadn't invested the money that they did, what was the alternative? What would what was the pivot for the Yankees? Because when you have one player, when you think about what when the Yankees didn't win this year, when they weren't right, it's because their offense wasn't good enough. So even with Aaron Judge's 62 home runs, they needed more offense. And and so if they had lost Aaron Judge, the difficulty you have in building a team is, okay, where do you pivot to? Because there's not another outfielder that's going to be like Aaron Judge. You could go get Brandon Nimmo. He's a really good player. But that's a five-war. Judge was a ten-war. And so, okay, that's great. You, you, so now where do you go? And you think, okay, well, let me go get one of the shortstops. Well, if I do that and get an impact shortstop, that now gets in the way of the young prospects that I have that I'm building for my franchise for the future, and I block their pathway. So if I don't want to do that, then I go, okay, let me go get another pitcher. But, you know, you might end up needing three different players to equal what Aaron Judge's value was to the team. And it's going to probably cost you 60 to $70 million to sign those guys. And so, so yes, in some ways you're right. The Yankees, you've spent all that money to stay where they were. But if they hadn't, they couldn't get close to what they were and – probably couldn't get better than what they were for the same amount of money that they're going to spend. And so I think it's a really unique one. I get it. There's a certain way to look at it that they only held par, but they staved off what I think could have been catastrophic for them. Yeah. I, I mean, the Yankees were sort of forced to do that. Uh, you know, and he, he also means a lot on an advertising basis. He's the face of the Yankees. It's tough to, to go out of that. You know, one thing I do want to ask you, as we, we've asked our previous guest, and we deal a lot with risk here. It's not just the valuation, but it's risk. And a uh, question comes up, you know, the Mets had a decision, uh, and uh, it was, they let Jacob deGrom go. They signed Justin Verlander. Uh, with that, obviously, it's a matter of value, but just in terms of pure risk, who do you think is the riskier player for next year? Is it DeGrom or Verlander? Oh, DeGrom by far. Yeah, I don't even think it's close. Uh, I mean, listen, Jacob DeGrom made 26 starts combined over the last two years. He made 11 starts this year. Uh, and so, uh, you know, and without having anything surgically addressed and corrected, and, you know, he's had his elbow flare up three different times over the last several years uh, to where his inflammation in the elbow. And, you know, it seems 
I mean, from my experience, it seems pretty clear there's something going on there uh, structurally. And, and, you know, that scares me. Verlander had it fixed. He's back. In fact, I think Verlander was the least risk of DeGrom, Rodon, uh, that entire group. I just think that, that, you know, he went out through 175 pitches. He's two years removed from Tommy John surgery. Uh, sure, he's 40. Uh, but, uh, you know, he, he did not show any real signs of decline. And so my inclination is I, you know, maybe they used a six-man rotation in some ways. Well, that's okay. I, I don't mind adding depth to pitching. That's one of the things that we've learned is the depth of starting pitching is critical. Uh, you know, the Astros had all fresh arms at the end of the year. And I think from the Mets' perspective, they need to do that too. When you think about Scherzer and Verlander uh, and Carlos Carrasco at 36 uh, and Kota Senga, who, Senga, who's only pitched once a week in Japan, uh, you know, ideally, they really could use a six-man rotation to sort of piece that staff together uh, moving forward. So I think Verlander was the least risk of the starting pitchers that were the key front end of the rotation guys. And speaking of all those Mets signings, Steve Cohen seems to have a, a, a plenty of money to keep doing this, and, and there's no reason why he wouldn't because he can. Um, but will there be any repercussions from the Mets going over the quote-unquote Steve Cohen tax? And is it good for the players, baseball in general? Well, I think it's, I mean, the repercussion is, yeah, owners are going to be mad about it. But, it, you know, there is a, a penalty that comes, and now he's paying 90 cents on the dollar for every dollar spent over 300 million. So one of the things to consider is what if they want to do an extension with Pete Alonso? Uh, so Alonso is going to make, let's say he's going to make 15 million this year for just the sake of discussion. But when it comes to an extension, his AAV might be 30 million. And so, you know, if they, if that's the case, then they're going to be spending money on money they're not even spending. They're going to be taxed on money they're not even spending this year because the AAV is going to be twice as much as his salary is going to be this season. So that's a repercussion is that they're way out there and it's 90 cents on the dollar. So, you know, it's, it's a dollar 90 for every deal. So, you know, $10 million is $19 million uh, over on the AAV. So it's not insignificant, but look, I think it's good for baseball. You know, I always thought George Steinbrenner was good for baseball. I thought that small market teams should be grateful for the Yankees and George Steinbrenner. And I feel that way about the Mets is that one, we need a villain in the game. And so if that's who that's going to be, we'll let it be them. Uh, but what happens is, and it showed this all the time, whenever the Yankees would go into town and in small markets, the fans would come out and watch them. They would, they, the home team the, that, that was the ones that didn't like the Yankees, you know, their fan base, they would come out and watch the Yankees. The team would generate more revenues. They'd have more money bills spent on players. They'd get more in salary and luxury tax and in, 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 in revenue sharing because of the money that they're bringing in from the luxury tax. And so, I, you know, I think the game's better when you've got teams spending money. I think the game's better when the large markets are healthy. Uh, and so I think it's really good for baseball, even if some of the small markets are going to complain. And even if it does create, you know, a sense of disparity, what we've seen is when's the last time we had back-to-back -back World Series champions? I mean, not since, you know, 99-2000 with the Yankees. And so it's been a long time. And, and so money by itself does not guarantee a championship. And with all the spending this year, what do you think either Juan Soto or, or Shoya Otani will get on the open market if they make it to the open market? What kind of contracts are they going to get? Are they can get over $5.5 Are they going to break that mark? Are they going to get more than, than Mike Trout has gotten in the past? Well, I think Otani's got a chance to, you know, $45 million a year. Maybe it'll be $50 million a year. I do. I think, And I think the, Yan the Dodgers 
seem to be resetting this year uh, and not going over the luxury tax threshold, competitive balance tax threshold, so that maybe they get in on Otani next year and that they can be the team that spends and gets them. And if they go over next year, they're a first-time offender. Uh, so I think Otani's going to get the big payday. I I worry that Juan Soto is going to regret that he turned down $440 million. I, I just uh, – he was not the same player this year. Uh, now, whether it was talk of the contract, whether it was, you know, all of the speculation about, you know, turning the negotiations going on and how much is he worth and turning down $350 million, turning down $440 million, you know, with Scott Boris saying they're $100 million short. I mean, the player I saw last year is not worth $440 million. And so it's going to be really interesting to see him get back on track. Now, he had a down year and a bad year. It's still really good. But, but you know, I want to see that same guy come back again before I start saying that I'm going to commit $440 million. And I want him to start caring about playing defense in the outfield and not be a liability out there. So I think there's some things. Now, he's young, and, 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 and here's the thing. What 23-year-old is going to handle the conversation about turning down, you know, $350, $450 million and not feel some stress and pressure about it? I get it. But yet he did, and I need to know that he's that same guy still as he works his way back and tries to get back on track again. Yeah, you had uh, Juan Soto since he joined the Padres. He had a WRC plus of 130. Daniel Vogelbach went to the Mets, WRC plus of 144. So, yeah, yeah, that's uh, (laughs) very, very interesting. Uh, And you might be right about the Soto versus Otani. I want to talk a little bit about the uh, new baseball rules. Uh, Next year, we're talking about pitch clock, bases, uh, no more shifting, and, of course, the balanced schedule. Um, What's your take on some of the rules? Do you think that uh, those rules or maybe some of them are not so good for baseball, some of them are good for baseball? Just wanted to get your general take on them. Yeah, I think they're all good for baseball. I really do. I think that Rob Manfred, uh, people are going to look back at this and think, well, this is going to be part of his resume. Uh, when he gets inducted into the Hall of Fame at the end of his run as commissioner, I really do. I think this is this is huge. The the stolen bases are really going to change the game. Uh, four and a half inches is a mile uh, when it comes to how many how many times on a stolen base do we go to review on a bang bang play and the guy's just out? Okay, now he's four and a half inches closer. He's safe. And, and it's going to change the whole dynamic about how much teams run and the limitations on being able to throw over to first base twice. And then the third time, if you don't, the runner gets advanced anyways. Uh, is going to be a factor. You're going to see runners steal third more as well, four and a half inches closer. Uh, and so I think it's really going to be an interesting dynamic and the limitations on throwing. Banning the shift, we're going to get more singles. Now, I don't know necessarily whether it's going to change hitters' approaches I just think the miss hits, where they're still going to try to hit it over the infielders and over the outfielders and over the wall, the miss hits will find more holes. And, and we're going to have a lot more base hits. I think we are. I think it's just inevitable that we're going to get that. Uh, and uh, and then more speed on the base is a factor in it as well. Plus, the hitters in the box are closer to first base than they were before. So infield hits are going to be more than they've been. Trey Turner, a big beneficiary of that. Shohei Otani, going to be a big, big, big beneficiary of that. Um, and then, you know, the other thing is the pitch timer is going to be really, really something to watch because I think we're going to have a lot of energy early in the season about it when it gets enforced. So Kenley Jansen, you know, Kenley Jansen going to the Boston Red Sox on a two-year deal. Kenley Jansen is the third slowest pitcher in tempo and with nobody on base, and he's the slowest with runners on base by – about 11 sec, 10 seconds and 11 seconds. And so 
The difficulty is, you understand for a veteran pitcher, what he does with that extra time is he, he recovers from the pitch he threw, and he musters up the, the energy for the next pitch. When you're going to make those guys throw it more quickly, you're going you're gonna to have more misfires. You're going to have guys missing spots more. They're going to get to fatigue more quickly. It is going to change the dynamic of innings and mistakes that pitchers make. And some guys aren't going to be able to do it. Now, for Kenley Jansen, it's interesting. Runners are either going to steal on him because he can't hold a runner. I mean, you look at the stolen bases against him. I think it's like 95% success rate. Uh, and and then uh, if he doesn't, well, then, uh, you know, he's so slow that they're going to advance the runners anyways at some point by adding walks, their balls to the hitters and everything else. And so I think that's going to be interesting. Noah Syndergaard. Check out his stolen. He's had seasons where he's had 41 stolen bases against him and three caught stealing. Now, supposedly when he was with the Phillies, they found out something about what he was tipping and everything else with tipping base runners off. But but that is the Dodgers signing him is going to be really interesting because, you know, they're great at fixing guys, but they're going to have to not only fix his pitch arsenal, pitch his velocity, but also holding base runners. And so I think the rule changes are really going to make the game interesting. And do you think the rule changes are going to make pitchers change their repertoire and try to focus more on strikeouts or poor pitch more inside or outside? Or may we even see an alternate shift maybe in the outfield and have outfielders move to the to left field or right field or move them around more? Yeah, interesting. So we asked managers that question at the winter meetings, uh, and they all sort of chuckled saying, well, you know, we're all thinking about these different things. And so could you see a two-man outfield with one of the outfielders move to the rover position? I think you can. And, uh, you know, trust me, the, the, the Tampa Rays are going to try it at some point for sure. Uh, but, you know, again, the sense of being burned in one of those situations, it, the penalty is going to be a lot more than it was before when you could shift infielders. And so I think it's still going to add an element to the game of, of excitement and intrigue uh, with what's going on. I think that when it comes to pitchers, I think the biggest issue is going to be, you know, and I, I think the fatigue factor, I worry about injuries. Now, somebody told me that, that injuries went down in the minor leagues with the pitch timer. You know, I watch minor league games. I'll tell you what, it's great. It's a much better product to watch because, the, you know, there's there's less time, downtime between the action, which is what they're doing this for. But when you got these veteran guys who are 40 years old, who have thrown thousands of pitches in their career, you think Max Scherzer's going to like it when Angel Hernandez says, calls time, said you missed the timer, and we're going to put a ball on, on the count for the hitter? I mean, they're going to go nuts over some of this. And so, it, which again, it's going to be interesting to watch. It's going to be great for us to talk about, uh, but you know I do hope that that this is gentler than what I anticipate it's going to be. Yeah, oh, definitely. the The young guys will be okay with it. The older guys, uh, the the old crew, they're going to have the most difficulty with anything in life, right? Uh, hard to teach old dogs new tricks and that kind of things. Now you're um, talking you know, to an old guy here, Ariel. You're talking <laughs> to an old guy here, so watch it. <laughs> well, I, hey, listen, I, I I value older. To me, older is more experienced. Uh, okay. But, good, yeah, good recovery. Nice recovery. Knowledgeable. More knowledgeable. That's what it is. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. I mean, look. You know, with the analytics departments, you know, they had a spray chart on everybody, and they had a shift for everybody. They're going to do the same thing again, but it's going to be a different shift, right? You're still going to have the shortstop move over. He's just not going to go on the other side of second base anymore, right? It, right. It's, it, it's still going to be the same type of analysis, just that. There's now a, a limiter, right? You, you can only can't put anybody everywhere. You have to put uh, you know somebody yeah, on the infield. But I will say, you know, the one thing there. So I was a middle infielder when I played the Mets minor league system, and uh, you know you can't line them up 
right behind the pitcher because you can't really see there. So he's going to have to be a couple feet over to be able to see the pitch go to the plate, to be able to see the ball come off the bat. And so, you know, we're right. We can say, well, he can still be just right behind the pitcher, just on that side. He's going to have to be over a little bit more. So it's going to right, be a couple right. more steps than we think. You know, I think a lot of people think, well, it's because you, you really being able to see, and then where's the umpire going to be standing with a runner on first base when you're playing over there? And how do you be able to get the view and for the umpire not to be in the way? So there's there are some things to be worked out with it. But you're right. It's still not – I personally would have put hash marks on the infield I would have, and I would have made the infielder stay within certain hash marks, leaving it to where what used to be a ground ball up the middle would still be a base hit or a real shot at a base hit. I would have limited even more how they would have been able to move and put hash marks. Look, we put hash marks on the football field. Nobody even notices them anymore. Uh, but I don't think they were ready to, to be that draconian with, with what they're doing with the rules. Yeah, that's an interesting take, and uh, I would not be surprised if, if they did that. Uh, we'll certainly see how, how everything shakes out. I just wanted to ask a question or two about you personally. Um, can you tell me, who was the biggest influence for you in, in your professional career? Well, you know, when I first started, uh, Joe McElvain and Jerry Hunsaker and, and Frank Cashin were, were my sort of people that I learned from. You know, Frank, longtime executive, the Orioles, and then the Mets, and, and uh, won championships with both. Uh, and then Joe McElvain, one of the best scouts I've ever been around uh, in his days with the Mets and, you know, those early 80 Mets teams with Strawberry and Gooden to those guys and, you know, all the guys that they had drafted and signed and brought into the organization. I mean, I, I got drafted in 82, 80, uh, in 81, 1980 was Strawberry, 1982 was Gooden. Uh, now, obviously, 81 was a, a lesser year because I got drafted that year. But uh, uh, but they, you know, <laughs> they, they went on that great run and Joe McElvain, one of the great scouts and then Jerry Hunsaker. Uh, an underrated executive in baseball, you know, came in with the Mets, was the farm director, uh, then the assistant general manager when Joe left to go to San Diego. And then Jerry got, uh, you know, the Houston Astros job, did a great job building that team. They won the championship the year after he was there, but uh, left, but uh, was a very good executive, then went to the Rays as well. Uh, so, you know, those guys certainly, uh, Billy Bean's always been a buddy, you know, I played in the minor leagues with him uh, and uh, had an impact there, you know, being around. You know, you, you feel like you learn from everybody. Al Jackson, uh, longtime Met uh, player, and uh, he was my manager in rookie ball in the Appalachian League. Uh, and, we, and we were horrible. Our team, we lost our last 18 games, and we would have kept losing. The season just ended. Uh, and so, uh, but he was, he was a pitching coordinator, a pitching coach for us, and just one of the, the great uh, knowledgeable guys about pitching. Dave Wallace, one of my assistants, a brilliant guy. Omar Manaya, one of my assistants. You know, and here's the thing. You don't just learn in baseball from the people above you. You learn in baseball from the people around you. Uh, and so like Omar Manaya as an assistant was great. He was he was my ideas guy where he'd start throwing out ideas, throw it against the wall, see what would stick. And Omar would make a suggestion. And I'd go, no, I don't think so. Then he'd make the same suggestion the next day. And I'd go, no, I don't think so. Then he'd make it again the next day. And I'd go, no, I don't think so. And then the next day I'd make the same suggestion to him. And he goes, oh, really? I wish I had thought about that. Because he sort of he sort of got me warmed in because general managers tend to say no at first because it's safer, gives you time to digest and, and and to evaluate and all of that. And so and then you learn from other general managers like John Sherholtz. I mean, I you know, John Sherholtz did it for so long. Uh, and you know, I told John Sherholtz and Bobby Cox that if I ever had to pick him out of a police lineup, 
I'd have to have them turn around because in my six years as general manager, I only know what they look like from behind because I could never, we could never get in front of them in the standings. You know, they were always ahead of us. Uh, and I could never, you know, I, I never knew what they looked like from the front. But, uh, you know, I think you learn every day from people. I learned every day from Eduardo Perez on MLB Network Radio and Xavier Scruggs on there, the guests that we have. And so uh, I think that's sort, sort of thing. I'm sure it's the same for you guys. We're sure we may have had primary mentors, but every day we learn something and hear something different from somebody in baseball. They were like, oh, you know, I hadn't quite looked at it that way. That makes sense. Would you ever consider becoming a GM again? I mean, it looks like a fun time to be a GM for the Mets right now, but would you ever consider being a GM for, say, another team or even the Mets if they asked you? I wouldn't. I think that, that um, you know, here's the thing about it is, and I don't think people quite get it, those jobs, it's a lifestyle. It's not a job. And uh, it is, you know, 162 games, and then the work starts. And, you know, the days of, of you know, my kids have grown up at the day of, of – you know, saying goodbye to my kids at 7.30 in the morning and then seeing them the next morning to get them on the bus again. That was it. I, you know, I'll see you tomorrow in, in, at 7.30 in the morning. I wasn't going to see them the rest of the day. It's a lifestyle. And, and I, I, the way I obsess about uh, numbers and success and failure and everything else, it, it physically it eats me up. And so it's much better for me to be a general manager for all 30 teams. At the end of the day, no owner or owner's son calls and says, what are you doing? Nobody's feeling any pain. I don't have to deal and answer questions to the media. And I can just sort of talk about it and lay my head down at night and not feel the stress and pressures of it. And the competition part that I still get satisfied with is just trying to do better in media, being able to educate people more, trying to say things in a way to make it more, uh, make it easier for people to understand the way people in baseball think. Yeah, no, definitely. And speaking of competition, um, I know you were in Tout Wars last year. Are you planning to still uh, be in it this year? I certainly hope so. And, and you know, for me, it's an absolute honor to to participate with you know, the best of the best in fantasy. Uh, you know, it's fantasy is different, but it's much the same. It is. And, and so, like, people always say, well, fantasy. No, that fantasy is one of the same passion exists among team owners and managers. Uh, and, and two, uh, it is a way of thinking when you're a general manager and people who, who succeed and who are the experts in fantasy have that way of thinking. It, it really is truly a way of evaluating and thinking about the game to try to put it together. I couldn't agree more. And uh, I look forward to seeing you on Tat Wars weekend. Uh, just, uh, I think it's about St. Patrick's Day this year, just a couple of short months, so that'll be great. Steve, this has been so much fun. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, I know you do the leadoff spot every single day. Uh, anything else uh, going on, you're working on these days? Yeah, I'm, I'm doing a lot of TV work now with MLB Network as well. I'm uh, north of the border uh, in Canada. I do uh, the baseball insider, national baseball guy for TSN, which is sort of the ESPN of Canada. Uh, and uh, that's Valley Sports out of Chicago. So, yeah, I got a lot going on and, and just love being able to talk about baseball every day. And, and certainly the radio show on MLB Network Radio prepares me for the rest of the day with what I'm gonna, what's going to happen, what I'm going to talk about. And, uh, and so some good folks and really grateful to, to be working with all the different people that I am in, in the different, uh, different outlets. Absolutely. No, amazing stuff. Uh, Ruvain, why don't you just tell everybody uh, what's going on with you? Well, you can follow me on Twitter at MLB Injury Guru, where I tweet out injury updates during the course of the season, after the season as well, during the offseason. I also have a weekly injury article coming out for Rotoballer during the season to keep track of all the injuries and the next players up. All right, and I'm Ariel Cohen. You can find my work over at Fangraphs and Rotoballer. 
And uh, the ATC projections, uh, number one projection system, according to Fantasy Pros. Of course, I just said that to impress our guest here. But uh, ATC projections uh, coming out one month, about one month. So uh, get your calendar set and uh, use those for your drafts. You know, we do and uh, all the folks do. I know the NFBC does. I know plenty of guys who play on CBS, Yahoo, ESPN do. So that's coming out in just a month. And, of course, you can listen to me right here on the Beat the Shift podcast presented by Fangraphs every week. We'll be weekly starting in January. We'll probably have one more episode before the end of the season. Once again, thank you so much to our guest, uh, Steve Phillips, for coming on the show. And from all of us here at Beat the Shift, we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Beat the Shift podcast presented by Fangress. Follow us on Twitter at Beat underscore shift underscore pod.